straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Oh, so reluctant. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of St. Andrews. Lately, I've been getting loads of emails about the show. I find it so encouraging to see how many people are interested in the topics. You have no idea how much some of your messages mean to me. It really keeps me motivated to do my research and to create more content. I often say if that you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, I've received several really interesting questions and topics. So in today's episode, Emma and I open up some mail, and we answer some questions about the show and about God and time. So ready or not, here's Emma and I answering questions about your favorite theological obsessions. Enjoy. We've got some listener questions today. Mm-hmm. You ready to me open this letter? Okay. Well, that's a big letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Looks like we've got quite a few listener questions here. So, Emma, why don't you... Here we go. Why don't you read the first question? Sure. Ooh. Oh, that's a nice one. I like this. <laughs> so, Ryan, our listener wants to know who does the intro and outro music for your show. Right. So, with uh, with radio shows like with podcasts like this, you have to do what are called royalty-free shows uh, music, unless you actually want to pay the artist. And I don't have money, so uh, so we, <laughs> so I found a royalty-free artist called uh, Rock Domination or sorry, Metal Domination, and they just do lots of like royalty-free metal music, so that way you could use it for videos or podcasts or whatever. And it's in the in the song is called "Raising Questions." Mm, that's so, very appropriate, and it seemed yeah. appropriate for what we were doing. And then just the music, it seemed it seemed like a really good way to kind of do an intro outro for it. So yeah, nice. And a follow up on this: Who does the music for the objection time? Right. So the objection time. <laughs> this was uh, actually this is part of a song from the band I was in when I was twenty years old. Ooh. So the band was called To Die Alone, and then the song is called Tomorrow We Die. Oh wow! So, it's a very cheer up. Well, yeah, like we were, in there. yeah. Well, you know, when like when we were a teenager, we're, obviously. Yeah, we were in our twenties, and you know, we were twenty. Uh, some of them were a bit younger, so we were nineteen, and we're all super happy, super fun, you know, yeah, loving guys, and we're like, you know, tomorrow we die. <laughs> um, so yeah, the song's called "Tomorrow We Die," and then what I did was I just I just took the beginning of it, and then I just re-recorded over the top of it, just me screaming "Objection time." over and over again because <laughs> i wanted something for uh some, some some sort of metal music for the objection time and i was like what do i do for this okay i'll just scream over it objection time and uh, nobody none of our neighbors complained while i was doing this that's true but it was in the middle of the day so they're hopefully all at work but uh yeah this, <laughs> it's just me it's just my band from when i was 20 and then me screaming over the top of it objection time did anybody actually found out it was you screaming no um uh, jt turner who we had on the show a little while ago when we were chatting about it he asked me this as well he was like he's like who is that and i was, I was like oh that's me screaming and he's like he's like nice that's a pretty sick voice and i was like i know i know i still got it i still got it <laughs> you certainly yeah, do <laughs> yeah uh, so oh yeah another another interesting one here <laughs> What is the story behind the picture for the podcast? 
Right. So anybody who wants to create a a a picture for their podcast, you have to upload a picture that's a very specific pixel size in order to get onto iTunes. Otherwise, you just you can't finish uploading your your entire podcast, Mm. which is incredibly annoying for most people. And the only picture I could find was this one that fit the right size. Yeah. I don't know why. Like a crown on top. Yeah. So the story behind that. Okay. So what happened was this was um, I guess would have been like maybe like two and a half years ago. I went to Glasgow with with my friend to see some sort of like cabaret show or something. Uh, And so this girl, she wanted to do a a sketch on the monarchy. It was like critiquing the British monarchy. And so she asked everyone in the room to raise your hand if your parents made a particular amount of money. And and I'm sitting there doing the math in my head because she's saying everything in pounds. Like, do do your parents make this Mm -hmm. amount of money in pounds? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. And I guess. And then like uh, at some point, like everybody's hands drop and I'm still thinking in my head, I'm like, I've still got my hand raised because I'm still doing the, the calculations in my head about how much my parents make. <laughs> and I'm like, I guess in, in pounds and for this part of the town, like it does sound like a lot, but I'm like in America, it's not that much money, but, but for, you know, uh, in Glasgow it is. And so I was like, okay. Uh, so I got my hands on it. It turns out like my parents have made the most money in the room. Okay. And so she declares, well, then this is your new king of, uh, you know, oh. uh, uh, of, of England. And since we're in Scotland, the king of England also rules Scotland. So, you know, come up on stage and everybody all hail the king. And so she makes me do this ridiculous ceremony where she throws this, uh, it looks like a cape, but I think it was a garbage bag. She just kind of puts it <laughs> on my shoulders and then she puts this like tinfoil crown on me and she's, I mean, this music is playing and everything and she's really taking it, like it has this very serious look on her right. face and she makes me hand, hold these two brooms that look like they're scepters or something. And so she's crowning me and then uh, she goes around the room and she's like, everyone pay the king, pay the king, give taxes to the king. And she goes around this bucket and forces people to put like change in it. <laughs> And then she comes up and she like kneels in front of me and hands it to me. Wow. And, and, and then she's like, sire, your your people would like to hear a speech. And I didn't, I, I mean, like, again, I'm just like from the audience and then she get pulled up on stage and yes. all this. So now I have to give a speech and, and no one's heard me speak at this point. And so I just say, well, as an American. And, <laughs> Obviously. Right. And so, so, yeah, as it's an room, American, new king of England. <laughs> exactly. It's so all these Glaswegians. Like they're just, they're just dying. They're all just like dying laughing. And that was the entirety of my speech was as an American. That was it. But it was a success. So, <laughs> so that was a picture that a friend took of me when I was being crowned the new king of England. Okay. Well, <laughs> as an American, you're new the new king of England. Yeah. Great. So, Ryan, this other question I find it fascinating. <laughs> so someone asked, according to John Milbank, you are wasting the glory days of your youth with analysis. Is this true? <laughs> 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 right. So John John Milbank, um, so he's a, he's a theologian in, in England, and he does a lot of, he's a part of this movement called Radical Orthodoxy. So it's a kind of philosophical theology that's a, a bit, a, just a bit different than the sort of philosophical theology that I do. Okay. Um, so, so Milbank, I can't remember which friend of mine told me this. I think it was, I think it was my friend Bill Wood said, you know, you've made it big when John Milbank has insulted you online. <laughs> right. uh, and so, so when Definitely I saw check that, right. And so several people alerted me of this, uh, this, tw- this tweet, uh, cause this was on Twitter where John Milbank made this, this claim. So it was in response to the, my Theopolis essays on divine simplicity that we just did the two episodes on. And so, Milbank uh, was just he's like he's like you know Mullins is clearly just you know wasting the glory days of his youth with analysis you know <laughs> uh, so I gather he did not think that my argument from Theopolis uh, against divine simplicity was a good one mm-hmm. because he thinks that of course God has to necessarily give grace to everyone 
uh, and that was actually the conclusion of my argument is like, well, if God's simple, then he has to give grace. He's not free to do otherwise. Okay. And grace is supposed to be traditionally is, is, is the sort of thing that God does not have to give. He doesn't have to give you grace at all. That's why it's yeah. called grace. But for Milbank, I, from this tweet, maybe he's saying it's hard for me to interpret typically okay. what he's saying in general. Uh, and then a tweet, you know, it's even yeah, shorter. It's so, so it's short, like, yeah. right. So he seemed to be suggesting that it is the case that God necessarily gives grace and so, well, you know, and you needed to spend all these all this time with analysis, with analytic theology to figure that out. And I'm like, well, OK, um, so maybe it is the case. I'm just wasting the glory days of my youth on analysis. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. At least people understand what I'm saying. So that's that's something. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think you're wasting your days. I mean, I don't know. I guess I could do something else. I well, you probably could do something else, but yeah, you're doing pretty well right now. Seems like it. Yeah, seems like yeah. it. Right. So I guess I'm not wasting the glory days of my youth. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so other question for you. Uh, Miriam is asking, your thesis argues that because God changed, God cannot be timeless based on relational theory of time. However, if time is absolute and exists independent of change, then God could be timeless. Because it could be thought that God is out with the box of time in which everything else is placed. In other words, God who changes in a reality where changes has nothing to do with time could be timeless. Right. Yeah. So, so this was a question from a this student. Is a, you might want to clarify a bit this because it was a very long question. Yeah, it was a long question. There was some other things built into it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, originally, so this is this was a, if I remember correctly, she's a master's student in philosophy at Glasgow, and she's working on a dissertation on feminist approaches to time. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so she had asked, she said she read my, my PhD dissertation, which is, um, not, it's not quite as good as my book, The End of the Timeless God, but it's an earlier version of that material. Yes. So she was reading through that and she had some questions. And so this was one of them. So the, so let me like, so explain, like kind of unpack this a little bit. So she mentions the relational theory of time. And so the relational theory of time says that time exists if and only if change exists. And so if there's no changes taking place, there's no time that takes place. Mm-hmm. And whereas the absolute theory of time says that time can exist without change. Okay. And, and, and so I look a bit at this in my, my, my dissertation and then I look a bit at this in my book. And then I, what I ultimately say is it doesn't really matter which way you go on this. It's not going to affect any arguments I have against divine timelessness because both of these theories agree that if change occurs, there's definitely time. So nobody's denying that. Right. But a lot of people get confused about the absolute theory of time because the absolute theory of time has been talked about in very confusing ways. Right. So it says time could exist without change, but well, what, what does that mean? And and that's where I think uh, part of her question here, because like she's towards the end of this question, she she says it seems like you know that the absolute theory of time has nothing to do with change whatsoever. So you, a god who changes in a reality where change has nothing to do with time could be timeless. And I'm, I'm like, that's just not exactly what the absolute theory of time is saying. So the absolute theory of time does not say that time has nothing to do with change. It says that the existence of time is independent of any changes that take place. Mm. So there's still a relationship to change. So, for instance, Isaac Newton's version of the absolute theory of time, he says that time just kind of flows from moment to moment to moment at a uniform rate regardless of whatever whatever like physical objects exist and regardless of whatever like physical changes those physical objects are undergoing so there's still a, a change in the sense of from moment to moment to moment on newton's yes. understanding but that could all happen without a universe existing without any physical objects existing mm-hmm. those physical objects come into existence 
doesn't affect time at all. The time exists regardless of whatever changes are happening within the universe. Okay. Well, that that makes sense. It's like time is independent on whatever is within the universe. Correct. Right? So whatever is within the universe does not affect time. Exactly. Yeah. So time is completely independent of the physical universe. Mm-hmm. For Newton, time is an attribute of God. And this is something that a lot of people in the 20th century did not talk about. They wanted to ignore this because we want our favorite scientists to not be religious. Uh, and then we certainly don't want them to be in, like obsessed with alchemy and all sorts of uh, in-time beliefs. Like, Which he like, was surely not. No, no, he was never obsessed no. with these things. He didn't do, <laughs> most of his writings were not on the end times uh, or alchemy. Um, they were all purely scientific and all perfectly rational. And he never once had a breakdown, a nervous breakdown in his life. Um, none, none of these things ever happened. So, um, <laughs> except for that one time. But then after he got, after he had his nervous breakdown, then he became uh, in charge of the bank of, oh, of England. That's true, I remember that. Right. So, yeah, I guess, you know, if, it pays off to have a nervous breakdown if you're a genius with numbers. I don't know. <laughs> he found uh, being in charge of the treasury to be more, like, less stressful, I guess. Like, it was more relaxing. It was less stressful than doing science. And uh, uh, Yeah, I can see that one. <laughs> you'd rather be in charge <laughs> of the economy than doing. Yep. Than, Right. So so for so for Newton, he would think that uh, God's temporal because time is an attribute of God and it exists regardless of any physical changes that are taking place. Mm-hmm. So Miriam's question is looking at it the wrong way. She's she's thinking that the absolute theory of time has nothing to do with change whatsoever and that changes could take place mm-hmm. and that somehow God could still be timeless. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. Everyone agrees that if there are changes in the life of God, for instance, then God would have to be temporal. But whether or not time exists uh, with or without change, that's a separate issue. So, yeah, the next one from Keith. This is a very, very specific question this person has. Mm-hmm. You might want to read this because it's really specific. Okay, okay. Yeah, so yeah, hand, me the, hand me the letter here. So. Yeah, get it in there. Okay, so let me look at this letter from Keith here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Keith is saying... Oh, okay, so he's talking about my book here. Yep. So so Keith says, on page 73 of your book, you note, in the context of discussing perfect being theology, that temporality and or atemporality, like, just like timelessness is what he's getting at here, he says they should be thought of as a perfection or an essential property versus a relational or an accidental property. And then he gives this quote for me where I, where I say, there is little sense in claims that God is timeless sans creation, but temporal with creation. Uh, so that's a quote for me. And then back to Keith saying, can you unpack or show me where you have unpacked this conclusion? That is to say that temporality and, and or temporality ought to be considered an essential attribute. The answer seems to be right in front of my face. I believe that Craig, uh, he's referring to William Lane Craig at this point. It's okay. like, I believe that Craig holds to a relational theory of time. I may be wrong about that. So, so, so he's asking a very specific, very nerdy question about, about my book. And you loved it. And I love it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I love know. it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so let me unpack a bit what's going on here. So, like I said, the relational theory of time says that time exists if and only if change exists. And majority of people throughout the 20th century, and actually most of Western history, have affirmed this view. There's only a few like minor people during the scientific revolution, like Newton and some others, are, who are like, nah, nah, absolute theory is way to go. And then after the scientific revolution the view just kind of dies out and then it's gotten some interest again in in contemporary philosophy of time but most people don't affirm it and so craig affirms this this view that if there's change there's time Uh, and when it comes to god craig wants to say that god is not essentially timeless and he also says god is not essentially temporal and those are not essential properties of god so he says before well okay it looks like he is saying before god creates the universe god is timeless 
and then he becomes temporal. Okay. But that would give you this incoherence of saying God was timeless and then he became temporal because you've got this before and after relation right. between those two moments in the life of God yes. and that's a temporal relation. Yes. And you can't have that. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. And so Craig's like, well, that doesn't make any sense, so I can't say that. So what he does instead is he says God is timeless sans creation, so without creation, but temporal with creation. And he says these two moments in the life of God, they're not in a before and after relation. They're well, the ones logically before, but it's not temporally before. Okay. Right. I'm missing something here. It sounds like a trick that is being played, and I, I don't know how to get my head around it. Right. You probably have a better explanation. No, no, this is the no, problem. No, I don't. Um, okay. So this, yeah, so this is something that Natalia Ding and I talked about a few episodes ago. Yes, that's true. So when she, when she looks at this particular issue, she does the same thing that a lot of philosophers of time do, which they look at this and they go, I... I, I don't, I'm sorry, Craig, like you're really brilliant. Like you really do good work. But this one moment uh, in your work, I can't understand what you're saying. Okay. I just don't know what this means. And that's something I've really struggled with a lot. Uh, Paul Helm, he affirms that God's timeless. And he has this really interesting critique of it. I can't get the quote just right, but it was something like this moment of silence from Craig on explaining this this distinction uh, between God being timeless, sans creation, temporal with creation. So Helm's like, he's like, this moment of silence on Craig's explanation of this view is odd from a philosopher who is normally quite happy to give long justifications for his you know explanations for what he's up to. <laughs> and, and I think that's right, because Craig always does a great job at like just really unpacking and justifying everything he wants to say. Right. So either even if you don't agree with it, he still wants to give you a nice detailed explanation. This one... It, a lot of people end up just kind of scratching their head going, I don't understand exactly what's happening here. Okay. And so that's how I feel. So what I end up, though, is I end up with a God who is not essentially timeless nor essentially temporal. Mm-hmm. And in my book, I just kind of dismiss the view entirely. Okay. And so that's what this, this question is about. It's like, why do you dismiss it? And it has something to do with perfect being theology. But Ryan, what are you up to? Why are you dismissing it? And so here's, here's what I'm up to. So, so the method of perfect being theology is what I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. And the method of perfect being theology starts with the claim that God is the greatest possible being. And from there, there's a couple different axioms and some different rules uh, that I'll talk about in another episode that I, w- w- that you kind of build into it to try to figure out what are God's essential properties. And so perfect being theology can only tell me what God's essential properties are. These are the properties that make a being divine. And essential properties are not the sort of thing that you could gain or lose over time. Mm-hmm. So if I'm working just from perfect being theology, I can only figure out what the essential properties are. I couldn't figure out any accidental properties about about God. So if God is timeless sans creation, temporal with creation, that means those are not essential properties because God doesn't have to be timeless because from Craig's view, he ceases to be timeless when Mm -hmm. he exists with a universe. So God's timelessness or temporality, they are not essential properties on Craig's view. So the method of perfect being theology is not going to tell me this is not even an option because in Craig's view that these are accidental properties. So they're beyond what perfect being theology can even establish. As I see it, the only options are if you're doing just pure perfect being theology, your options are figuring out, well, is God going to be timeless, essentially, or is he going to be temporal, essentially? There's no such thing as essentially accidentally something that just isn't that's just not uh, within the remit of perfect being theology. So I just kind of dismiss it out of hand. Say, if we're doing, if we're engaged in perfect being theology, this isn't even an option. Okay. It's just methodologically, it's not even an option. That doesn't mean Craig has no justification for the view, though. So he can give a justification from something else, uh, a different method outside of perfect being theology. And he does this in his work. 
So he has this Kalam cosmological argument that I've taken you through before, that whatever yes. begins to exist has a cause for its existence. It's true. Yes. Yeah. So he's got some arguments there for why it pushes, he thinks it pushes him to this claim that God is timeless without creation. And so he could kind of look at me and go, okay, Ryan, you dismissed my view on the basis of perfect being theology. Eh, whatever, that's fine. Because I can use natural theology, arguments from natural theology mm -hmm. to justify my view. Okay. Um, so it's not a knockdown argument against Craig at all that I've offered. Um, but it's just, it's, it's a much more technical point of just, if this is the method we're using, this isn't even an option to consider. Oh, I see. I yeah. See. Yeah. So I just kind of excluded it out of hand. Yeah. So, okay, Ryan. Keith is actually a follow-up question mm, okay. as well. Yeah, again, this is a very nerdy question. I think you're the only person that can deal with this. Right. This is super technical here. again. Yeah. Please help me out. Okay. So <laughs> it looks like he's still asking a question about my book again. So yes, again, just yes. stroking my ego. I always love that. I know. Right. Uh, so oh here's what is Keith saying here. I so Keith says, you, <laughs> so Keith says, um, I take it contra Craig, you do not hold that the B theory of time logically entails eternalism and four dimensionalism or the A theory entails presentism and endurantism. Indeed, you say as much on page 23 of your book, but I am hard pressed to locate any writer or theorist who is an A theorist that explicitly argues for eternalism or vice versa. It seems to me that w when you have writers like Paul Helm or Catherine Rogers, they are all willing to bite the bullet and hold at this logical entailment. So thank you for any response. Um, so yeah, so let's unpack that a bit because this is super technical. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems very hard. <laughs> okay, so eternalism and presentism, these are theories on the ontology of time or what moments of time exist. So presentism says, well, what moments of time exist? Well, present. Only the present moment exists. That's why it's called presentism. It's right there in the name. The past does not exist. The future does not yet exist. Eternalism says that past, present, and future, all those moments equally exist. And so that's how these two different views answer the question of what, what, the, what the ontology of time or what moments of time exist. The A theory and B theory, as I understand it, this is supposed to be about theories of time, but I see it as they are actually theories about uh, temporal propositions, okay. about what's the best way to talk about time. Should we talk about time in tense language? Uh, so the A theorist will say, I should talk about time in terms of past, present, and future. So Ryan and Emma are now talking. Ryan and Emma were eating fish and chips. Ryan and Emma will go watch TV. These are all in terms of tenses, of future tense, past tense, present tense. Mm -hmm. Whereas the B theory of time says, no, the fundamental way to talk about reality is in terms of, of like tenseless propositions. So Ryan and Emma are talking at, you know, uh, 7.30 on such and such date at such and you know and mm -hmm. so on and so they give all this without any reference to there being any sort of present moment or any reference to the past or the future okay so like i said it's super technical here's where in the 20th century a lot of people they thought the a theory of time entails a particular ontology of time like maybe it entails presentism maybe it entails something else and the b theory entails only eternalism and there are people today who will both defend that i disagree though and so what the question here from Keith is asking is like, well, you disagree, but like, who are these people that do that? Mm -hmm. And so here's some examples here. So um, with the A theory, uh, there's this guy named Ulrich Meyer who's got a, a, a book that came out in 2013 called The Nature of Time. And he is defending a tensed or what you call it, an A theory of time. He gives you all the temporal logic and it's, it's 
so if you really like your symbolic logic, this is a good book to read. If you don't, it's a bit hard to, to recommend this book. But he's developing an A theory of time. But what ontology of time does he affirm? Eternalism. He doesn't think that presentism is consistent with uh, physics, contemporary physics. So he's like, A theory of time, this is the right way to do it. Here's this nice logic to develop all the temporal logic you need to develop the A theory. Mm-hmm. But do I want to affirm presentism? Nah, because I think science says something else. So I'm going to affirm eternalism. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and so this would have been something that, you know, in like the 1960s, 1970s, people would have been like, you can't do that. And and now here's someone going, watch me. I just did it. I gave you all the nice details. What do you want? You know, go home. Um, And so with the A theory, you can see similar people doing this. So Tom Crisp is someone who has developed what's called an airsats B theory. And there's other people like Craig Bourne, Craig Bourne's book called A Future for Presentism. So he's defending presentism. It's right there in the title of the book, A Future for Presentism okay. in Defense of Presentism uh, you know, is, is the subtitle. And he develops his airsats B theory of time, saying that the right way to talk about time is in this tenseless way. And they develop the tenseless logic and then say, but the right ontology of time is presentism. So these views, it doesn't seem like the A theory necessarily entails any particular ontology. And it's not clear to me that the B theory does either. Hmm. Uh, And so it is true that most philosophers of religion who are thinking about God's relationship to time, they typically go a theory, therefore presentism. Right. uh, And then they'll affirm like an endurantist account of persistence through time that I exist as a whole or all at once from moment to moment. And then people who want to get say that God's timeless, they'll go, eh, no, 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 the B theory and therefore eternalism and therefore what's called a perdurant account of identity over time where I don't persist from moment to moment in terms of me just being one thing instead of got a bunch of parts laying about at other times. And they do fall this way, but it's not clear to me there's a, a straightforward entailment to these views. Hmm. So philosophy of time is a lot more complicated than it's often portrayed in philosophy of religion discussions. And so that's that's kind of what this question's getting at. Is like, Ryan, you made these claims. What's going on here? I'm like, well, here's some examples now. Okay. Yeah. So, but in your view, are mm-hmm. you doing this mesh and mash of things or not? <sighs> <laughs> Gosh, it's tricky because I definitely want to affirm presentism. Okay. And the temporal logic, do I want to go tenseless or tense? Do I want to go A theory or B theory? You know, it depends what day of the week you ask me because <laughs> okay. the airsats B theory that some of these people have developed, to it, it looks like it can solve a bunch of different objections might, someone might have to presentism. So there's something called the grounding objection, which is um, Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. Uh, well, what makes that true? Well, Abraham Lincoln doesn't exist anymore. That mm. moment where he's the president, that's gone on presentism. It doesn't exist anymore. Well, what makes it true? And so for lots of super technical reasons that I will not go into, the airsats B theorists like Tom Crisp or Craig Bourne, they're going to say, if I give you this nice tenseless logic, this nice B theoretic logic, something about the propositions and the way they're ordered in this tenseless way, that's what grounds the truth of Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. And so they say it gets me out of all these objections. Uh, and it gives, so it can give a nice, neat story that supposedly you can't get if you've got an A theory on the temporal logic. Okay. But I don't know, because there's other people, um, there's this guy named Ross Cameron who has developed this new theory of a moving spotlight. Right. So the moving spotlight used to say this. There's old, the old spotlight says you've got an eternalist ontology of time. All moments of time exist. But there's this extra feature. There is a now. And it's this spotlight moving across the block of time. Mm-hmm. And, and so it sounds kind of cool, but you get these weird objections that pop up against it. And so in response to a whole host of objections, Ross Cameron has developed a new moving spotlight theory 
where what you have instead of all moments of time existing, you've got you've just got the present moment, but he wants to put a bunch of non-present objects in the present moment, mm. which is super weird. Uh, I, I might do an episode at some point uh, to explain that more because it's really technical and really uh, so it might be worth kind of unpacking in a non-technical way. But he gives a whole nice account of an A theory of temporal logic, of our tense logic, that seems to be very attractive as well. It gives a nice story of how you can answer a lot of these objections, like the grounding objection, without having to go to this B theory, this Airsets B theory. So I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I remember definitely that book lying around the house. Right. Yeah, because it was. It took me a while to get through because it was really intense. Was, you, yeah, I remember we were in Amsterdam when you were reading it, and mm-hmm. he was like, this is so technical but so good. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Ross Cameron, he's always so good at this. Like, he does this, like, he'll do some really weird metaphysics, and then, you know, but you're, you look at it and you're like, actually, that just looks really common sense. Um, it makes perfect sense, which is good because he's Scottish. So, like, you like you want, like, what's great about a lot of Scottish philosophers historically is they are common sense. Like, they're like... <laughs> No nonsense. I know. No. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. really some sums up of Scottish people. Right. Yeah. No nonsense kind of people. So yeah, <laughs> Ross Cameron, no nonsense metaphysician. I love it. <laughs> this is great. Okay, Ryan. Here a question for you from Andrew. Mm-hmm. He's saying you should do a pod- podcast episode on divine nature. For example, what constitutes constitutes an attribute of God. Are all God's attributes essential? Does God possess contingent attributes, etc.? This also flow into areas like whether the atonement was necessary. Is hell necessary? Must God punish sins? Is God free? So lots of things there. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so what about a podcast episode on divine nature? Right, so yeah, so Andrew's not asking for much, right? He's just, just like one single podcast episode yeah. that does all this. Sounds stuff. like a millions of different episodes, but anyway. <laughs> right, which is fair enough because... But we thought about this. Yeah, right, we've we thought about thought this about because we have, coming yeah. up in a few months, we've got mm-hmm. scheduled a whole series of interviews with a bunch of big names doing uh, a series on models of God. So we've got Thomas Williams doing classical theism. We've got Simon Hewitt, who's going to kind of follow up on classical theism to talk about epiphaticism or negative theology. Mm-hmm. And we've got Tasia Scrutton, who's going to talk about impassibility versus passibility. And so that kind of leads into some more non-classical models of God. And we've got David Anzalone, who's going to take us through an issue on on hell. So he, uh, so he has this argument that if anything kind of like a traditional doctrine of hell exists, that might cause problems for anybody who affirms passibility. And then we've got uh, you and I talking about neoclassical theism and open theism. Yes, I remember that. I didn't even know I was able to talk about mm-hmm. neoclassical theism. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then we have. I'm, I'm trying to look for some 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 more people to talk about open theism. Uh, but then we've got Andre Bukharev, who's going to talk about pantheism and panentheism. So we've got a whole series of episodes coming up that are already recorded uh, on just the divine nature, and so that's going to go through a lot of these things in more detail. I'm also talking to some people about doing some episodes on salvation. So we're going to get to all the things that, that, that Andrew's asking here in this question, but it's not going to be one podcast episode because, uh, it's well, a lot it's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's worth exploring. But to give like sort of a, a, bit, a bit of a preview here, though, so, so this question, like what constitutes an attribute of God and are all of God's attributes essential? And does God possess any like contingent attributes? So, so sometimes I notice a lot of students... Uh, like if they're like seminary students or something, they're used to looking at only classical theism. And classical theism says like God has all his essential attributes and he has no accidental, no contingent properties whatsoever. Mm. And and so that's kind of where all the focus is. So sometimes students get really tripped up with the idea of what it would mean for God to have a contingent property. 
and so I guess just unpack that a little bit and end on this sort of note. So an essential attribute or an essential property, as I understand it, is just the essence of something. So Emma, you've got essential properties that make you you, mm-hmm. that you would have in any possible world you exist, you would have these properties. So you are beautiful. You are wise. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep right. going. <laughs> mm-hmm. To say Karina, right? Oh, mm-hmm. thank you. So these are essential properties that you would have in any possible world you exist. You could not fail to exist uh, without these properties. So, so there's no. So, wor- so I'm yeah. not going to have an evil twin in a parallel universe? Well, it would be a twin. It wouldn't be you. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Damn it. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Sorry. That yeah. sucks. <laughs> well, there might there are possible worlds where you have an evil twin, but yeah, but it's not me. But it's not. Yeah. But it's those are not. Yeah. Right. It's your twin. Ah, right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. So the individual essence picks out those that set of essential properties that make you you. And so when we're talking about God, we're saying there's a set of essential properties that are necessary and sufficient for making something divine. Mm-hmm. And we typically say things like aseity, omnipotence, omniscience, all those big omni words. Might not necessarily need those, but whatever those properties are, those are the ones that are essential to what makes God, God. Mm-hmm. Now, contingent properties, though, those are things like um, creator of the universe, savior of mankind, judge of all men, because these are things that God did not have to do. He did not have to create a universe. Mm-hmm. So as I see it, God is essentially omnipotent or all-powerful, and he's, and he's perfectly free. So he has the ability to perform an action or to not perform an action. And so whatever he does with his essential freedom and his essential power, that is when he does these things, then he acquires contingent or accidental properties. Mm. So with his freedom and his power that he has necessarily and essentially, and he cannot lose, if he performs the action to create a universe, then he becomes the creator. And that's a contingent property that he didn't always have. Right. And so that's a property he gains. He wasn't the savior of mankind because, well, human persons didn't always exist. Okay. Uh, so there's no human persons even save. Uh, when they come into existence and he does stuff, well, then he's their savior. Sure. Now, Christians want to say that God, before creating universe, either logically prior or temporally prior, whichever you want to go, I'm not going to judge at the moment, even though internally I am judging, but, you know, <laughs> they will say that God has comes up with a plan before creating a universe. And so they'll say, well, God came up with a plan of salvation before he even created the universe. And I can say, that's fine. He came up with a plan, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean he's the savior yet because there's no human persons that exist. Sure. Right. So in the same sort of way that like, uh, you know, some of our friends who are planning on having a baby, we could say, well, they're making a plan to have a baby yeah. and they're going to be a good mother and father, mm-hmm. but they're not a mother and father yet Exactly. because they don't have a kid. There's sure. no baby. Yeah. So same thing with God. He can make a plan to create a universe, make a plan to save humanity, make a plan to judge uh, the wicked and, and the just. But that doesn't—he doesn't get those properties until he actually creates a universe. Then he becomes the creator, and then when he actually does do the actions that save humanity, he becomes the savior. And so he acquires all these different properties. Yeah, I want—I want to push back on this, mm-hmm. maybe in a stupid way. That's right. Um, so. If one holds uh, a view that God knows everything and what's gonna happen, yeah, so he will know that we, he he will know that he will create human. He will know everything already. Right. I know he didn't not perform the action yet, so he cannot be technically the savior of humankind, for example, because right. these are no human around. Yeah. But he will do that. So doesn't that actually imply that is even if he didn't do yet, but he will happen and won't be happening otherwise he make himself already the creation and of humankind anyway oh sure 
Uh, historically, most classical theists will say no. Okay. Um, because they want to even deny that he literally has these properties of creator, redeemer, uh, lord of, uh, of all, judge of all men. They want to say those are contingent properties, accidental properties that that God does not literally have that they're actually saying something about us. Those statements are saying something about us. Mm-hmm. Um, but more contemporary thinkers who claim to be doing classical theism will say, yeah, no, that's right. He's eternally the creator um, because he always had this plan. And I'm like, well, okay, I guess you could say that. But it's a really funny way of talking because he hasn't created anything. Like the, the universe literally does not co-eternal with God. So here's a so to kind of push back to push to really show like why I think it's a really funny way of talking. Here's some examples of other people who seem to me to have a much better way of claiming. No, I really have a, an eternal creator. So Proclus is this ancient pagan philosopher who was around during the the sixth century or was it seventh century? Yeah, it doesn't matter. So the Christian doctrine of creation on nothing is being developed around this time, and so people are really starting to, at least within Christianity, are really starting to say the universe is not co-eternal with God. There's a state of affairs where God exists without a universe and a state of affairs where God exists with the universe. Mm-hmm. And Proclus goes, well, you got a God who changes. And everyone in the Christian tradition is going, no, 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 he doesn't change. I swear he doesn't. Yeah. And he's like, right, right, sure, <laughs> whatever. Okay. Uh, and then Proclus has this other argument, which is, well, God's eternally the creator because otherwise he becomes the creator. Can't have that because we want to say God's timeless. How does Proclus say God's eternally the creator? He's like, well, because the universe is literally co-eternal with God. Because whatever an eternal being does is going to just eternally follow from his actions and so it just doesn't make any sense in Proclus's mind that an eternal god could perform an eternal action mm. that does not have an eternal effect uh, and so he's going to be like right so the universe just has to be co-eternal with god mm-hmm. and if you're saying well god's eternally the creator but the universe doesn't exist yet it's not co-eternal with god but he's eternally the creator i swear i lose my grasp on this because i've got a much better example from someone like proclus sure, sure. yeah and then i can say give another more contemporary example so my friend tom ord who we had on the show a yeah. while ago so he thinks god's temporal he wants to get rid of classical theism and all this sort of stuff but he wants to say god is essentially loving and god's love necessarily entails that he has to create a universe with free creatures and give them and give them being give them goodness give them freedom and so on and so god literally is the eternal creator because there's never a moment in the eternal life of god where he exists without a universe of some sort he is from all eternity creating and from all eternity there is something that he is creating that exists alongside him so i think i can really get a good grasp on what that means if people like that say god's eternally creator but if a classical theist or anybody wants to affirm that the universe is not co-eternal with god if they want to say god's eternally creator i want to go Mm. i don't understand what you're saying i just don't understand what you're saying I can understand the individual words, but I don't think they have any meaning. So, which actually does connect nicely to this last part of Andrew's question, I guess. Yeah. So he says this flows into areas like whether or not atonement was necessary or hell is necessary or must God punish sin. So here's what's going on here. There's some different thinkers who want to say because of whatever God's essential or uh, necessary attributes are, that might entail that God has to do certain things necessarily. So, for instance, when I said Proclus says God's eternally the creator, well, it entails that like God just has to create and there just has to be a universe that's always existing with God. Well, there's some other thinkers like uh, Jonathan Edwards who says that God has this essential property of wrath or judgment. Mm-hmm. Well, what is God judging? Because you can't have wrath if you don't have an object of wrath. That seems silly. Well, and, and Jonathan Edwards is like, ah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I got an answer. I got a story to tell for you here. <laughs> Why does, why does God create the universe? And why does he create a universe with the evils and the sinners that we see in it? 
Well, because God has this essential property of wrath that needs to be displayed. So there has to be this universe that has all these evil things in it, that has all these sinners in it. And that explains why, you know, uh, there's this universe of this sort, because God is this essential property of wrath that has to be manifest. That's horrible. That's usually the reaction to Edwards on this point. Yeah. Um, a lot of other things Edwards wants to say, I think, are just really good. He's a really br- brilliant thinker. But this one, I just want to go, <laughs> ugh, ugh. And a lot of people do recoil at this this sort of yeah, uh, idea. Yeah, because it's like, uh, I thought it was a rational person, God. Y- yeah. The wrath doesn't sound rational. Oh, sure it is. Because surely, surely you think at some point, like, there are various people in your life where you're like, that person deserves a little bit of judgment. They deserve a little bit of wrath because that was that was awful what you just did okay yeah mm. and a perfectly rational being is going to give the right amount of wrath to mm. various people in the right okay, amount of like love the appropriate yeah, yeah it's always gonna be appropriate <laughs> okay but it's it just but it still feels kind of gross though that god has to create a universe with evil in it it seems like i have and, to create myself a punch bug yes exactly that, that doesn't sound good <laughs> otherwise i can't be who i am otherwise i can't actually yeah. exist and so there's sort of objections you kind of get as it seems like, well, maybe God's existence now depends upon the universe. And not only does it depend on the existence of the universe, it also depends on the universe being a particular way, mm-hmm. which is having a bunch of evil in it. And that just feels very uncomfortable, I think, for most for most Christians. <clears throat> so, yeah, so there we go. Those are listener questions. Uh, thank you, everyone, for writing in and, you know, write in some more questions and we will tackle them. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for episodes in the new year on consciousness, artificial intelligence, and so much more.